I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. William Yam. He is a cognitive neuroscientist and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Chicago, where he studies visual working memory. And he's also a big advocate of open science and reproducibility in science. So we're going to talk about that as well. William, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this opportunity. Um, first podcast I've ever been on, so ho hopefully it goes well. I'm excited as well. Thank you. So let's talk about your background a bit. What first got you interested in neuroscience? Yeah, so um, my path into neuroscience was probably not the most traditional. So I started, I did my undergrad in psychology at the University of Sydney. Um, and uh, at the time I was into psychophysics. So I didn't really do any uh, neuroscience in, uh, during my undergraduate studies, except for save a couple of neuroscience related courses. Uh, uh, I've heard of in babies. That's like how you predict where things are going to move and stuff, right? Uh, so psychophysics generally is um, like sort of the measurement of uh, like, well, for me, like perceptual or like sensation, those kind of abilities. So you might think of like in essentially putting like a metric to it. So um, the work I'm familiar with. Uh, includes things like measuring contrast sensitivity functions, doing a lot of like measuring orientation discriminations, um, like making okay. really fine perceptual judgments. Um, uh, and this could also be not just in vision, but in like sensation, so like in touch and things like that. Um, that's broadly the area of psychophysics. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of my early work was interested in um, trying to figure out um, certain things about perception. Um, so how I ended up in neuroscience was, uh, and I think we'll talk about this in a few in a bit, uh, is the the result that I sort of found seemed like it could only be answered or needed a sort of neural explanation for what's ha for what was happening. So I was sort of ended up moving in that direction to try and find the answers to the questions I had. Um, so to elaborate a bit more, um, so my research looks at something called visual working memory. Mm -hmm. So that's how um, it's the way we uh, encode and retain visual information and keep it active and online for ongoing like perception and cognition. So how we sort of treat the, how we treat the visual information coming in, mm -hmm. and uh, my. The very first experiments I ran, um, I was very interested in what perceptual factors, like what stimulus factors may uh, influence how you remember that information. So uh, my first experiments involved English letters and also um, these artificial um, characters and also um, uh, sort of scripts from other languages. Uh, so, but my first experiment was with English letters in different fonts. So I had uh, uh, Helvetica, Korean New, I think Times New Roman, and Kunstler font. And so the idea was that these fonts have different stimulus complexities. So like the, the fancier the font, the, um, the more features it would have. Uh, what do you mean by features? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. So uh, the way we measured features was um, using uh, a measurement called parametric complexity. Um, so parametric complexity is the perimeter of the letter squared divided by the ink area. All right, so it's a very, um, so it's an objective measure of stimulus complexity. And the reason why I can attribute that to features is because of some work done by Dennis Pelly. Um, Dennis Pelly has a very famous paper um, called, uh, I think, letter identification and a feature identification in letters or something like that. And so Dennis Pelly, he's the eye chart guy. The, if you go to the optometrist and you have to get okay. your eyes tested, Dennis Pelly is the guy who made that eye chart, the Pelly eye chart. Mm -hmm. um, so he showed that this measure of parametric complexity almost accurately pr uh, predicts how well you identify the letter in noise. So um, the metric we measure for that is uh, identification efficiency. Um, so the, 
what he found was almost a perfect correlation between this measure of parametric complexity and how well you can detect the letter and identify the letter amongst noise. So I that seems to be it is to to see. Yeah, so you can imagine like a simple letter. Um, it's it doesn't get obscured by the noise, so you can sort of you can pick it out by the noise out of the noise much easier. But then as the letter gets more complex and more scrambled, um, it becomes harder to see amongst the noise. So um, actually, Penny, Pel, Dennis Pelly thought that this measure of parametric complexity would not predict how well you see those letters, but turns out it does. Uh, so we use that metric to try and link that to how people would uh, remember those letters. So we showed those le letters very briefly and we wondered maybe the more complex letters would be harder to remember. So it would take longer to do so or um, you wouldn't remember as many. Um, but we found that was not perfect. So we actually noticed that um, with familiar letters, with like English letters, people were pretty good. Um, they were great at it. But with an unfamiliar alphabet, like the Kunstler font, which is this like calligraphy font that's really hard to tell the letters, um, people were terrible at it. And we also tried this with um, languages that people were uh, had weren't native with, um, like Chinese, Hebrew, Arabic, um, and what we found was rather than this stimulus effect um, predicting how people's memory performance for those letters, uh, it was actually just whether they're fam familiar with those letters or not. So you, if you were familiar with the letters, you were you encoded them really fast and you restored more of them compared to unfamiliar letters, which you stored them slower and stored less of them. Uh -huh. You see that complexity relationship with unfamiliar stuff, but if you're familiar with it, it kind of bypasses that. So uh, not quite more that this familiarity effect sort of just blows out of the water any chance of us seeing a complexity effect. Like okay. the familiarity experience related effect seems to be the one that drives the difference in memory performance. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, and we also tried this with artificial characters. So with artificial characters that had the same number of conjunctions, the same number of like letter strokes to write the characters, um, still the same effect. Either you're because you're familiar with English letters, you get a boost in performance. With a similar kind of type um, type set of letters, you, the performance drops, right? Um, so yeah, so we realize, okay, there's this cognitive familiarity effect um, going on. Um, what is the best way to try and get a explanation or to try and figure out what's going on there? And the, the best explanation I could come up with at the time was um, we overlearn these letters and there's probably areas in the brain that, um, well, we do know that there's areas in the brain that probably like are specialized to detect letters because you've trained them over and over and over, over to learn the letters. Uh, so yeah, and so I wanted, so that's what got me on my path towards neuroscience. I was like, oh, I need to figure out, maybe I can figure out how, why these letters are identified more efficiently because they're recruiting these areas. So I need to measure like ongoing online neural signals to see if that's happening. And so up to this uh, point, it was all just those behavioral studies and, and making these. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so before we so, get into the neuro part, I want to ask you why perception? What got you interested in that as opposed to all of the all of the different things of the mind you can study? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So um, for me, actually, I was uh, I perception wasn't the first thing I was interested in, in psychology. Um, I really wanted to do personality and individual differences research. Um, it just so happened that by the time of my honours year, which, um, so I did my study in Australia, the equivalent in uh, the United States might be a master's program. Um, the, the supervisor I wanted to work with uh, went on sabbatical, so couldn't supervise me. So I got, a, got shifted to my second preference, which ended up being sensation and perception. And um, I really enjoyed how sort of methodical and um, how sort of uh, quantitative the approaches in sensation and perception were. And I really enjoyed how we, we were sort of modeling physical phenomena, like reactions to physical phenomena in the world. And it's always really cool to see, like, for example, um, visual illusions and trying to figure out 
like why does that illusion happen like we have a stimulus that creates this sensation what's going on there so that sort of was always my like i was always interested by that in perception and then so by luck of the whatever by fate whatever you want to call it um, i ended up being put into a perception project uh, for my research project and i really in enjoyed that that um empirical research project yeah. so that's kind of how i ended up in perception is gestalt psychology still a thing i remember learning in the intro classes they talk about it and it's like all of these i guess these mental patterns of like maybe you'll see a dotted circle and you'll fill in the blank and perceive it as a circle rather than just a whole bunch of dots and stuff like that yeah 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 um so yeah gestalt cues are definitely still a thing they're still relevant and i'm interested in that actually so i'm interested how gestalt cues might influence how you organize the visual information that you see into what you store in memory um, and speaking about neuroscience um, some work out of the lab i'm in uh, with edo and ed vogel um, has shown that some of the neural signals that we see that track memory load um, react to gestalt cues so like grouping um, even illusory sort of gestalt cues, like you mentioned, uh, seeing the like gap in the, in the letter C, uh, Landolt C perhaps, um, that those have tractable, um, influences on the neural measures that we, um, track, that we track memory load with. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, those, that's definitely a thing. Um, yeah. And so we want to know how, how that happens or why does that organization occur, you know? Um, and whether that organization occurs in other ways. So, for example, um, gestalt cues are generally like bottom up or described as stimulus driven. Like they, you can't, you cognitively can't like influence it. You just see it that way. Usually, mm -hmm. um, we want to know if you could, we can recreate the same thing cognitively via experience or learning. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one of the, um, sort of research tracks that we're, we're taking on um myself and the rest of the lab uh -huh. once you settled on perception i guess vision is kind of the most obvious one but did you ever consider um looking looking at hearing or taste or touch or anything like that uh i did briefly um if i did though i would have taken on like uh multi-sensory stuff like audio visual in combination because i find that really interesting too like um yeah you know, the ventriloquist effect is kind of weird when you think about it. Like, so, um, you know how if you have a ventriloquist dummy, um, you attribute the voice, the sounds to the ventriloquist rather than the, to the dummy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the research behind that is pretty interesting because it's like, um, you base your, your perception is based on which you which signal you find has less noise like is is more informative and visual is really good for spatial stuff but audio generally isn't your ears don't really localize things as well as visual so you rely on your vision to localize the source of the sound to the to the dummy not the not the ventriloquist which is interesting um yeah. why does your brain do that um so yeah if i i'm tangentially interested in those other senses but sort of vision sort of grabbed me and and took and I ran with ran with that was it more of a of like a practical or a philosophical uh drive is it like how the heck does does the mind work how do we see how do we perceive or was it more like you want to know the nitty-gritty details so that you can maybe so so you can find some useful application for it down the line uh yeah great question I would there's a bit of a combination of both but I would say maybe 85% the former, 15% the latter. Sometimes, um, I think you, sometimes people describe sort of my area of research as basic science, um, as opposed to applied science. Um, it's not quite obvious what the applications of my research is. They're not really like as concrete or easy to come to, um, compared to other areas of research. But, um, yeah. But for me personally, um, I was more, I got, uh, I got taken by this question that I really wanted to find the answer to. Um, I was ever since that on that research project with the letters, I wanted to know what is happening, like how, what determines how visual information is encoded. Um, 
can we improve how visual information is encoded? Like, can we help people who um, perhaps um, have lapses in attention more often than not? Um, so that's the applied side of things. But how we need to do that first, we need to understand how attention works and whether we can actually is is visual working memory or like is visual capacity um, sort of uh, stable, like it's sort of immalleable to change. Those kind of questions have to be answered first. Um, and we have to just understand the system first to be able to improve it and things like that. So, yeah. A few weeks ago, I was talking with uh, another neuroscientist, uh, Felipe de Brigard from, from Duke University, and he started off as a philosopher. And we were kind of talking about philosophy of mind and, and some of the historical advances with towards what eventually became psychology and neuroscience. And one of the things we talk about that I think is going to relate to working memory is the idea of consciousness as like a continuous stream of thought. So the idea is if you're perceiving things, it seems almost built in that you need memory for that. Because what would it be to perceive something if it wasn't stored somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, wow, that's a huge, <laughs> huge question to, yeah. to dive into. Um, yeah, I, I've tended to avoid using the term consciousness in anything related to anything that I do, but it's definitely related. I think it's maybe I'm shaped that way to try and avoid getting, for example, um, people who research consciousness to say, hey, that's not consciousness. You can't, you can't claim that. Um, but I definitely do think you're right that um, visual working memory might be our window into what consciousness might look like or what it might be. Um, so the idea is, um, so with visual working memory, it's the amount of information. We usually go by amount, but it's also what you store in mind. And we haven't quite got a grasp on what people store in mind yet. We haven't quite got a grasp on um, like how is that information represented in mind? So um, a lot of recent work trying to get at a question uses um, decoding, like multivariate pattern analysis, machine learning to try and decode the representations in mind. So we're trying to make headway on that question. And I do think in, in some way those, those, that research is inf going to inform what is happening with consciousness, like how, our, how is consciousness being manifest, I guess, in, um, in our representations, in our, in our brain, in our neural representations. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we should unpack some, some more of these basic definitions. So working memory is very different from regular memory, even short-term memory. And then we, we could also talk about what you mean by mental representations. Sure. Um, so let's start off with working memory. So um, your listeners might be more familiar with uh, visual short-term memory. Um, and visual working memory is a part of that. Uh, the, the reason why we add the working bit is to emphasize that this is the information that is being held online that you use to do something with, to do something with. You're working with that information. So in terms of our experiments, it's to recall it at a later stage, to try and see what has changed on the next screen. Um, to try and detect a change or to localize where the change is. Um, so that's the working part, and that's why we call it visual working memory. So um, the idea is it's active and being actively retained, um, whereas visual short-term memory might be a little bit more, could be held for a little bit longer, um, not necessarily at that moment in time or online. Um, you could sort of have it there and then re retrieve it at a later point. Uh -huh. um, yeah. A good way to phrase it that working memory is constantly being like refreshed and thrown out? Uh, that's a good question. We don't. Uh, so the reason I sort of hesitate is that we're not confident that those processes are actually happening, like a constant refreshing mm -hmm. uh, slash throwing away. Um, like probably that's happening. Um, but we don't I don't know if we have anything we've observed anything that can that reflects that uh, process, that sort of that constant updating. What would be an alternative explanation? Uh, not sure, actually. I wonder if uh, possibly something like you got that trace and you hold that in mind uh, and there's no updating required that 
pattern of activity is the is the memory trace, um, and there's no pruning or there's no refreshing required. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so there's um, what your question sort of brings to mind. Um, recent debates in the field about something called activity silent working memory, which is the idea that you could have um, a memory trace that doesn't show up but is stored somewhere um, that is activity silent. Um, you might think of this as maybe the gateways in your neurons are ready to fire to produce this memory trace. So you just need to give it a bit of juice or to give a cue for them to retrieve that what was activity silent to bring it back into to bring back the pattern of activity to bring it back into consciousness or awareness. So does um, the silent part just mean not consciously aware, or does it mean like a step further than that? You're not even able to detect it. Uh, both, a bit of both. I mean, that this this is these are the questions that we're trying to figure out. We're not sure. We're not even sure if um, activity silent working memory is a thing yet. Um, but that's one of the ideas, one of the theories that have been brought up in the in the field recently. Um, right. So yeah, so in, in that case, um, perhaps updating isn't necessary for working memory. Even So perhaps some information is being updated and refreshed, but perhaps some is not updated and dropped, but you could retrieve it at a later point. Um, and then if you're maybe holding it in consciousness, for example, that's the updating or refreshing pro process that's going on. Uh -huh. um, in terms of unconscious perception, you probably know about some studies where it's like, they flash an image for like a split second, not long enough for people to consciously perceive seeing it. But then like the brain might still light up as if it's a fearful face, maybe the amygdala will still emit a response, even if no one actually saw the fearful face. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that activity could uh, be, could come from the stimulus activity, like because you show activity to the eyes, the eyes will send that information to the brain. Um, so that might be the activity being decoded or being um, observed. So yes, it might not be conscious to the participant, but um, that activity is still there. Uh, so yeah, and mm -hmm. ideas around like cognitive access and cognitive control is like are really interesting. Um, I think the closest, this is might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think the closest um, experiments we have that get us towards uh, consciousness are binocular, binocular rivalry experiments. Um, so to explain that, um, binocular rivalry is when you present um, different images to uh, both eyes. So the most typical example is you show a green house or red face um, to the so green let's say a greenhouse to the left eye and then a red face to the right eye, but the even though that that information is being sent to um, the eyes and perhaps the brain later, um, the participant, the person viewing, uh, can only see one of those. They only see the house or the face, mm -hmm. and actually those usually. Um, go back and forth. You sometimes see the house and then that fades and then you see the face and then it goes back and forth. Um, and there's other types of binocular rivalry tasks. Um, one is with uh, continued flash suppression. So I'm not going to try explain that. Um, that's a bit far out of my expertise. But the idea is you mask a stimulus and um, it takes a while for some stimulus to protrude through that mask. So you have to like adapt to the mask before that stimulus reaches um, conscious awareness. So, and we can track like fMRI signals while people do this task to see which, which um, pattern of activity predicts which like thing the person is perceiving or seeing, which is really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. That's probably our closest track to how we um, observe consciousness rather than uh, what I do, which is our visual working memory. Uh -huh. So one more question, which probably has like deep philosophical roots that might be hard to untangle. Go for it. And then I'll go easy on you. So I'm, I'm, we talked about mental representations earlier, and you could imagine the possibility of, let's say, perceiving raw information, like can you actually perceive the world in front of you? And then other people might say something like, you can only create mental representations and that's what you're actually perceiving. You, you see the difference there? Uh, could you repeat that? Uh, not quite. 
So if, if you see something, I, I'm looking at you through the screen. You could say I'm actually looking at you. Another another alternative could be something like what I'm seeing is only the image my brain is creating from uh, some true raw data, but it's not actually you that I'm seeing. Right. Is, like, am I? Yeah. So, so to try and maybe reframe or rephrase the question slightly, it's like, am I actually observing the real world or am I only seeing a representation of the world that's being projected to my awareness or my consciousness in a way. And the reason I'm throwing this at you, even though you're not a philosopher, is because I feel like if it's the latter, if it's the one that requires a representation, the representation is going to require some sort of working memory. Cool. Yeah. So I like that. So, um, so this harks back to what I started with earlier, which what drove me into perception was like the idea of visual illusions, right? We have visual illusions are essentially incorrect right perceptions incorrect might not be the right word but like sort of we've taken this stimulus and we through some activity or whatever some estimations calculations whatever you want to call the perceptual process um come up with an image of a thing so um you can you have um those bi-stable images like um bi-stable images are the ones where you have like a Sometimes it looks like a duck with like a bill, but but then if you like look at it another way, it's like a rabbit. <laughs> so that's a very famous example of um, a bi-stable image. Um, yeah, so it's like what calculations are happening which drive the pers person to perceive the duck first versus uh, the rabbit first, for example. Um, yeah, so uh, to broadly answer that question, we know that the brain is kind of filling in a lot of the time and estimating like we have a blind spot in our in our retina like the optic nerve has no cones so there's a blind spot in our vision and we're filling that in our brain just um fills in that blind spot for us so uh so there's a bit of the world that at all times that we're not actually perceiving so but we perceive that image as like filled in we fill in that image so are we actually seeing the real world probably not there right um so that's a basic level and then you go up another level um we fill in things all the time like you said with um like the one i'm thinking of that uh you mentioned earlier which was like the land dot c's and then like like if you have the land dot c sort of facing together you get like a bar in, bar in between because if you like put them like this. So if you see them like this, you don't see the illusory bar in between them. But if you put them like that together, um, it's not going to be helpful to your listeners. I'm holding my hands um, <laughs> in the shapes of C and if, if C's. And if I have the C's pointing towards each other, you might perceive a bar in between them. Uh, if you have the C's facing away from each other, there's no way you can perceive the bar, which is a gestalt cue. Um, you can your listeners can Google Landolt C's if they want. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's like, is that that bar is, that object is an illusory object. It's like we've, we've, our brains are estimating and calculating and retrieve that cue and attribute that to an object for some reason, even though that object is made up of the absence of stimulus information from the from the seas right it's where the stuff is missing so um yeah so my long-winded philosophical stance on that is yes we're always perceiving a made-up representation of the real world in some way um and yeah whether but lucky for us it's a pretty accurate representation of the physical world almost all the time. <laughs> right, you mentioned multi-sensory perception earlier and, and, and there's there's a technical term for it. It's like convergence or something because we can have multiple senses pointing at the same thing and that's how we know it's real, right? Like if you just see something and there's no other evidence to prove it was ever there, you might be just thinking it was, it was a mind trick. But if you can see it and smell it and touch it, it's like it's probably there. Yeah, um, so that to me, that example to me sort of uh, invokes what I would call Bayesian thinking, uh, which is we accumulate evidence to, um, uh, to decide whether that 
thing is a real thing or not. So mm -hmm. if we had no information at all, uh, we would guess. We would have equal priors, um, equal beliefs to whether it was a real object or not. But as you see the object, as you touch it, as you sense it, um, you start to build evidence and information to um, believe that it is a real object. So um, I sort of just apply Bayesian thinking in that in that example. Um, I'm sure convergence of the senses is uh, a good way of um, describing that sort of thinking as well. Uh -huh. That makes sense. So that that's making me wonder whether whether working memory is really just a repository for that. It's like all of our perceptions are every every little piece of working memory might just be um, additional information added if you want to think about it in Bayesian terms. Yeah, uh, it could be. Uh, it could be. Um, some people have, I think, I'm trying to remember who it is, but I've forgotten. Um, have like Bayesian theory you're talking about? Yeah, Bayesian have applied Bayesian information theory into like how we encode the information um, uh, in working memory in or uh, or into like further memory systems. You don't. It doesn't necessarily have to be working memory. Uh, yeah, uh, that's completely a plausible theory. Um, I, it's it's worth modeling and measuring and testing. Um, it's it's an interesting one. Um, it it's working memory is definitely like relevant to those kind of issues. Like how we do we update the information um, and do we cycle on that information and does that information then inform or change our priors and our, do our decision process re rely on those priors, for example. Um, yeah, that's all relevant and interlinked and yeah, part of why it's so interesting to research visual working memory. Mm -hmm. What are some questions you're currently trying to answer? Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned with the letters and um, the familiarity idea before, so I'm, I'm broadly interested in answering whether learning and experience can uh, change or influence how we encode visual information. And we know it does. So like we know, as I explained with English letters, that readily influence um, how we perceived, how we encoded that information. Um, people have also done this study with Pokemon. Um, so this is by a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Zane Z. Um, he, he showed um, people like first generation Pokemon and then like one of the recent generation Pokemon. And this was generally like people who grew up in the 90s who were very familiar with the first generation Pokemon and not with the others. Mm -hmm. uh, and showed that people also uh, who are familiar with the Pokemon better encoded those information. So I want to get at that, uh, get at this sort of idea, right? Um, so what I've decided to how to take this on is to use associative learning because um, experience related stuff and familiarity is good, but how it's kind of hard to measure and manipulate. Um, what's an easier way of doing that is just through associative learning. Get people to learn this thing goes with that thing and this other thing goes with that other thing and get them to learn that as well as they can or uh, yeah, over a period of time and see how that learning tracks with how, that, um, how their memory performance for those items are. Um, so some of my most recent re research um, try to look at how visual statistical learning uh, influenced memory. And the idea with visual statistical learning, so to explain what that is, um, statistical learning is this idea that um, people can pick up um, statistical regularities in the world. Uh, so like things that co-occur more often together, people um, remember that uh, or learn that um, statistical relationship. Um, some people argue that visual statistical learning can happen unconsciously, and so um, I was I wondered if that was the case too. So I tried to examine this, but what I found instead was rather than visual statistical learning, rather this like unconscious process, I found that only in subjects that were aware of the statistical regularities that they showed any benefit of having that information to encode uh, into memory. So. In my case, it was like people had to learn color pairs, um, and only those who were aware that there were color pairs 
showed any improvement in memory performance, whereas those who didn't realize that there were statistical, reg statistical regularities in the displays um, didn't show any change in their memory performance or their memory behavior. So you can't you can't learn these uh, patterns unconsciously. Uh, I'm on the fence for that. I think it may be possible that you may learn patterns overall, generally unconsciously. Um, but this specific pattern, um, which is color pairs, just pairing of uh, color squares, um, to show any um, benefit to memory performance required them to know that there were these pairing regularities in the displays. Mm -hmm. If you had no idea that there were these pairing regularities, then you just didn't you didn't improve your memory performance. Your memory performance didn't change. So, uh -huh. um, but I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying that it's impossible that people can learn these learn statistical relationships unconsciously and then benefit from those that learned um, relationship um, in some task. Um, yeah. Perhaps memory, but I, but but now I'm on the side that for memory specifically, it looks like you need to know what's going on to to benefit from it. Uh, you're benefit, benefiting from the associative learning. Is it closer to memory or prediction? So is it like you have this bank of information you're, that that you've memorized and maybe you're using that as opposed to you've learned this relationship and you're predicting it, but you don't actually. I don't. I don't even know if that makes sense as an either or because I guess even the latter would require yeah. some sort of memory. Could be a bit of both. Um, so one sort of theory is that if you have these associative chunks, then sure you can predict what's coming up, and that maybe maybe you can then devote more resources to other things. Um, is probably one way to try and define it. Um, but for me, for me specifically, the question that I'm interested in is how these associatively learned things influence how we represent the visual information and like why does it why does associatively learn some learning something or learning a rule uh, in my case color pairs um, boost performance like what what is the process behind that how is this information represented so on and so forth um, yeah um, so there's something I've totally overlooked which I should have mentioned way earlier which is um, visual working memory uh, the limit to this information is quite high. Um, it's like so typical estimates of visual working memory capacity is about three to four items, three to four things. Uh, even though our like perception is feels rich, it feels like we can see everything and experience everything. When you ask people to remember what they had just been shown on a screen. Um, people can only really remember three-ish things, three to four-ish things. So one of my motivations uh, is that associative learning or, or chunking um, can help people overcome this limit. People can suddenly remember more things, um, more, more so than three to four. But then the question is, are there, is it because they're still packaging these, the more information to three or four, three like chunks, three units, or are they, um, devoting less resources to each of the, the units in mind, things like that. Um, so those are the questions I'm grappling with at the moment. Is your working memory, is it is it separate per sensation or, or like, so, so visual working memory, for example, if you're simultaneously trying to hold in like a number or a sound, and then you also try to uh, remember pictures, like do the, are the pictures housed in their own, in their own storage or, or would they interfere with the other things? That's a great question. Um, so most people do um, do these visual working memory tasks by uh, loading the verbal um, working memory by getting people subjects to repeat numbers out loud. So they'll say like, you know, three, four, three, four, three, four, three, four, like as they do the memory task and their verbal working memory is overloaded. So they can't rely on that to do the task. Um, uh, whether they're stored, whether that information is stored in separate places, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm, sh I'm pretty confident it's been shown that there's interference from like sort of different sources of information. Um, so, um, but I would, my sort of gut instinct reaction to answering a question 
is that uh, it depends on which part of the visual hierarchy you sort of look at. So, um, so this for, as a as a basic explanation, um, we sort of separate the um, the information streams in the brain to like um, a what stream and a like a which stream kind of thing, like um, measuring like a ventral stream. Um, and so what I what I mean by this is that um, perhaps later in the hierarchy, this visual information can get separated into different resource pools. Um, like for example, you might. Um, what's coming to mind is like for example faces. Faces have a well-known um, brain area that are like because they're overlearned stimuli. Um, people have a spot in their brain dedicated to faces, the fusiform face area near the fusiform gyrus, right? So if you were storing face stimuli, eventually at some point that the face information would activate that part of the brain and be stored perhaps um, in that resource pool, uh, whereas houses wouldn't activate that area. Houses might go to a different place. Uh -huh. um, uh, or letters. Letters might go to a different place. Um, so, uh, so it depends on like which area you're asking, I think, to right. answer that question. I mean, so uh, I guess there's the more literal way of talking about where things are stored, and then there's the more the more figurative way, which I think is, is how I meant to. So you, you talked about verbal right. memory being overloaded. So that sort of seems to imply that verbal memory is like a separate system than visual memory. We, so I think I have to be careful about how I say this, but um, let's say traditionally uh, in the literature, they've been treated as separate systems. Like um, uh, they've been researched as separate systems. People generally don't research both verbal and visual things at the same time. People usually do, if you're researching verbal working memory, you do a word task or word recall task. Whereas if you do visual working memory, you usually show them like a visual memorized, computerized task. Um, so I guess part of um, my, uh, I've been uh, trained to believe that they're two separate systems, but there's, um, the delineation is perhaps not as clear as that may seem. Um, I'm sure these, uh, at some point, depending on the task, can communicate to each other. A very simple example would be if you are doing um, a visual working memory task, which is typically like a change detection. Like try and remember these, um, let's say, let's try to remember these words. And these are words that you flash on the screen. Um, if you don't have an uh, articulatory suppression on the during the task, people will probably, in their mind, be saying those words out, like trying to like re repeat those words with it, to use old school um, stuff, the, the phonological loop. So they'll like if, if I flash the word cat and um, on the screen, they'll probably to try and remember, be like oh cat 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 in their mind. Uh -huh. If if you don't say like if you if you however if you ask them to repeat numbers out loud like like five, eight, five, eight, five, eight, repeating cat in your mind becomes incredibly hard. <laughs> so that's what I mean by we try and tax the verbal working memory system so that that doesn't get involved in the visual working memory part of the task. But I'm sure if that wasn't there, if that articulatory suppression wasn't there, people would rely on the, which makes sense. It would make you, would, it's so much easier to remember like cat in your mind rather than visually that information. Um, so that's a long winded way of answering, we've probably treated it in science as separate systems, but they're more interconnected than we realize perhaps. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah, I like I like that you're very careful with your answers and not wanting to, to tell me anything that, that you <laughs> I think that's a, a great tie in to talking about about open science and, and best practices in science, because it seems like, um, well, it seems like it's gotten better, but it seems like in the past we've had problems with um, I'll just let you talk about it. You could probably introduce the problem. Yeah, no, that, that was a great segue. I love that. So, um, yeah, for those who are unfamiliar with open science, um, so the open science movement is a fairly recent development in science. Um, it's sort of 
now become a broad umbrella term to describe um, scientists wanting to have their research more publicly accessible across not just to scientists but also to the public. Um, and there's many reasons for this. Uh, ways this is achieved includes things like having your experimental data openly, openly accessible on, repository, on public repositories like the Open Science Framework, uh, having your code um, available. Also, you could host that on the OSF or um, GitHub as a publicly accessible repository. Uh, and also the end product of our scientific research, which currently at the moment are scientific papers. Now, scientific papers, um, because of racketeering scientific journals, um, publishers, um, are often behind paywalls and uh, require expensive contracts for institutions to access people's research, to access the actual journal articles. Um, so there's been a recent movement to try and have those journal articles be openly accessible um, to not just the benefit of the public, but to also other scientists so that they can access people's research and we can communicate with each other a bit better. I remember um, seeing one meme, not even a meme, it was just a screenshot of a sad truth. And it was like a paper about open science and it was locked behind a paywall. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people, uh, hopefully a lot of your listeners have seen that that meme. And it's true, like there are huge paywalls and there's huge publishing costs to the scientists um, when they're trying to publish their research, when they're trying to disseminate their research. So that's one small part of the motivation for open science. Um, and so the open science movement sort of has sort of grown uh, a lot recently in part of something that I'd like to mention, it's the reproducibility crisis, um, broadly termed. And the reproducibility crisis um, is uh, not started not so long ago, I would say maybe like 10 years ago or so, um, in science where, um, uh, especially in psychology, starting in psychology, and then now across a lot of science, uh, where we could not replicate the results that had been previously published in scientific journals. Um, the best example of this is the Reproducibility Project Psychology, which took 100 published findings and ran replications of those findings to try and replicate those results. Um, do you want to, do you know how many of those were replicated? Do you want to guess? It was less than 10, right? Not quite that bad. So it was okay. uh, 30, 37, I think. 37 of 100 were replicated. So that's not good. Yes. Like, yeah, it's like... There's, there's another psychological thing that has to do with... I don't remember the term for it, but now that I said less than 10, it's like, hey, 37 is pretty good. But if I said <laughs> Yeah, anchoring. Yeah, anchoring to like 10 and like lowering your expectations. So like yeah. the counterfactual is better. Yeah. Um, but so... 37 out of 100 isn't great. And another part of that 37 is that even th those that replicated um, showed lower effect sizes than what was published. So the effects weren't as big. And that can be very important in applied studies, where if you're promising a treatment of a certain magnitude and your treatment isn't actually as effective as you promised it to be, that's bad. Um, so um, that came out. Um, there was a lot of other... Um, things that happened that coincided with this happening. Um, for those uh, for those listeners who are wanted wanting more materials later to understand, so uh, Daryl Bem, a famous social psychologist um, at the time, uh, published a paper on precognition, which is the ability to see the future, um, which is clearly impossible, um, and that got widely canned across like the internet um, and across a lot of science. But a part of that was people realized that um, scientists uh, or psychological researchers uh, are introducing uh, bias into how they do their experiments and how they do their statistical analyses and coming up and creating, creating these false positives, which is an antecedent to why these papers, like why published findings aren't replicating. Like, if it's a false positive, it shouldn't replicate. Um, Another famous example of that is the dead salmon in the MRI machine. Yes, so the dead salmon is actually a good 
so that's a statistical process where you don't correct for multiple um, multiple comparisons, right? And if you don't correct, you somehow come up with evidence that a dead salmon has uh, fMRI activity. Um, yeah, so, um, but it's not just that specific, like um, what they're now known as questionable research practices or QRPs. Um, so it's not just like not correcting for multiple comparisons, that's the issue. It's like people are p-hacking, which is adding more subjects to their sample um, until they get a p-value less than 0.05. That's a questionable practice. Um, people are combining data sets, leaving out variables or um, adding in variables, having various combination of variables to try and get a significant effect, significant being p less than 0.05. We should talk um, about what that means. So p is the probability value of the fact that that, that your finding isn't due to chance. And people generally decided less than 5% is good enough. But for one thing, that means at least 5% of research findings are false. And for another thing, well, it's just kind of an arbitrary number. Right, yes. So it was an arbitrary recommendation by um, Fisher uh, uh, in quite a while ago. I can't remember what year it was. 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and um, so, Yes, we would expect 5% of our findings to be false um, if those were the exper only experiments we were running. Uh, and, well, harking back to the reproducibility projects that I brought up earlier, well, then only 5% five of, 5 of them should have been false, positives, right? The 95% of them, if they were true effects. Um, but it was, we clearly didn't hit the mark. Something went wrong. Um, and that project isn't the only um, big reproducibility project. There's other projects called like mini labs. So there's been multiple mini labs. There's I think it's up to six now that have done, um, tried to replicate or reproduce a certain effect across huge sample sizes and uh, lots of different labs. And they've also had trouble um, replicating most of the, most of psychological research. Um, and these kind of pro problems are tractable to uh, a lot of areas of science it's been shown so it's it's sort of started in psychology and medicine research and then now it's sort of blooming if i can use that word too like or also like neuroscience um and all sort of all aspects of research um so part of that problem i guess we could imagine if the same experiment was run a hundred times then and even if it was false 99 percent of the time if by if one of them, it was just a fluke, that one would get published and maybe the other 99 wouldn't. So there's this. Um, yes, so that's. Significant results and the, the unsignificant results don't get published. Right? Yes, so yeah, so you're referring to, um, so the terms for those are, is like publication bias or the file draw problem where, so publication bias is this idea that null results, so non-significant results are harder to publish in journals. So. They're, because they're harder to publish, um, they sort of get kept in the file drawer. They kept hidden, um, which is bad. Um, so, and it's also another part of this is that because people have publication bias, um, people are incentivized then to find significant findings because that's what they believe will make uh, their research publishable. And that's the metric that we're measured by as scientists. Um, scientists are measured by how many journal articles you can produce uh, and how impactful they are. Um, and all of these factors, so this, the fact that there are incentives and the publication bias, um, have sort of proliferated these uh, false positive findings in the literature. Um, John Ioannidis, who's a, um, I think a professor at Stanford, I would say, uh, epidemiologist, uh, has a, in his 2005 paper, has a very provocative title. It says, why most published findings are false. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. part of it. Like, it's quite possible that more than 50% of the findings published in scientific journals could be false um, because of these kind of practices or um, publication bias or the file draw problem or questionable research practices that I've mentioned earlier um, and a slew of other other issues. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the reason I bring that up um, 
is that motivated this open science movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it motivated people um, trying to have their um, data open so that people can use that data, um, could check, you can, by having your data open, people can check for um, that your findings are reproducible. Um, and in my opinion, good science is reproducible science. And but what I mean by reproducible is that you can re reproduce the results and the experiment in a multitude of ways. You can re replicate the experiment, you can redo the experiment. You can also replicate the analyses that you did um, showing the effects or the statistical analyses that you, um, that you um, conducted on your research. Um, you can also um, provide the materials like the stimuli that you used or the code that you used so that other people can more easily look at what you did and actually that contributes to um, rigorous science because peer reviews um, can then check, um, uh, have, a, have a look at your data or um, they can replicate your experiment and that moves science to a more rigorous, uh, reproducible future. Uh, Do you think people are actually in the habit of checking other people's work, like even once it's made available, or is it just for show? Yeah, that's an ongoing concern. Um, I know I, as a peer reviewer, try to go into the open data, and if it's not there, I try and uh, access it. I try and ask for it or request it. Um, and some journals actually that I review re review for have in their journal policy that the data must be openly accessible or be made available upon request. So mm -hmm. it's part of the protocol. Um, so I'm doing a service to the journal by asking for the data. And I think it should be more common practice, at least even if not by from the, from the peer reviewer, for the scientist themselves. Like, for mm -hmm. example, for myself, if I want to go back to research that I've done five years ago, it's five years since I've looked at that code. I will hopefully I've made the, the code reproducible and the analysis reproducible so I can easily click and run and understand what I did in the past. So it's not just not just uh, for someone else's benefit, not just for the peer reviewer, it's also for my own benefit that I have things openly accessible and available. And yeah, and I so the first double check should come from the scientists themselves and any collaborators or co-authors on the project as well as the peer reviewers, and then as well as other people who are trying to replicate that research or redo that research, which I think is very valuable. Um, yeah, um, that's Another my stance that on that. Has been um, pre-registration, right? So that mm -hmm. so you submit your study design and it like either gets accepted or rejected before you actually have results? Yeah, so, uh, so let's explain how pre-registration works. So pre-registration is sort of like a survey that the experimenter fills in uh, before they do the experiment, generally before they collect the data, but some in some cases after you've collected the data, but before you've analyzed the data. And the motivation for pre-registrations generally has been to um, protect yourself from these, um, from these the bias that I mentioned earlier, from analytical decisions. Um, another term for that is researcher degrees of freedom that you may um, bias yourself into taking either once you've looked looked at the data, um, so or um, other questionable research practices like um, trying to add more subjects to give yourself a little bit more power so you get a p-value less than 0.05, for example. So in the pre-registration, you're surveyed about those kind of decisions. So you're, pre you're asked, what is your intended sample size for the study? Um, how did you reach that intended sample size? Uh, what kind of statistical tests will you conduct? What kind of analyses will you do? Um, and that is time-stamped and kept in a place so that we can, you, other scientists can confirm, yes, you didn't suddenly do something called p-harking, which is uh, hypothesis after results known. Like you look at the data and you're like, oh yes, the data must have, the, I always had that idea all along, the data confirms it, and you do like a one-sided, for example, a one-sided t-test instead of a two-sided t-test. Um, so, um, and the so the pre-registration um, helps make those research um, decisions more transparent uh, for others um, to check and for yourself as well. Um, and it's a useful process in many ways, not just for like other scientists to check, but also for yourself. Like you can confirm like you've your experimental design makes sense and 
in a lot of cases, you can um, get feedback on your experimental design. Um, you can ask, hey, I've done this pre-registration. These are the details of my experiment. Do you have any comments? And you can actually get feedback on your experimental design rather than running an experiment and then having no idea what you're going to do later. Um, and being like, ah, oh, I wish someone had told me something about this. So pre-registration serves uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of, um, like has a lot of uh, benefits to, to doing, um, serves a lot of purposes. Uh, so another yeah. devil's advocate view is you, you hear all these great stories about like some of the biggest uh, scientific discoveries were completely by accident. So so the, the, the more you focus on, on like, a set plan, I guess the less room there is for, for unexpected discoveries, sometimes they could be correct. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so that's a, um, a great point. And that's been part of the a lot of the debate around whether pre-registration is helping or is it useful or not. Um, and it's this idea that um, pre-registrations is probably is a, a pretty good thing and makes sense for confirmatory research, but for exploratory research where you don't really have an idea of what's going on, it's hard to pre-register because it's hard to answer questions about, you know, if you don't really know what the effect is, it's hard to answer a question about effect sizes and then estimate what sample size is needed because you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Another wrinkle to this argument um, that's raised by, I think, Chris Donkin and um, his collaborators, uh, I think Danielle Navarro, um, they they suggest that pre-registration might not even be necessary. If you're going to do good research, just like those, just do good research. You don't need to pre-register it. Like make sure you're, make sure you're replicating and make sure you're doing robust research anyway. You might not necessarily need the pre-registration to evidence your research is uh, rigorous. And they also take the viewpoint that um, uh, like for exploratory research, it doesn't quite make sense. Like the, the ways to make exploratory research robust doesn't involve a pre-registration. It's like if these um, are being trained well enough, they don't need to be babysat as scientists. Yeah, somewhat. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, and there is a, like, in terms of how we measure scientific progress, um, we, we may miss out on, like, if we, like, enforce pre-registration, um, we may miss out on exploratory findings or accidental findings. Um, but uh, that's to say pre-registration is not, like, not the be all end all. Like, you're allowed to have a pre-registration and be like, oh, I had an epiphany that I could do a do this analysis or explore this part of the data, and that didn't occur to me before. It's just nice to have the pre-registration because it's made transparent. Like, these were the ideas I had prior, and this is something I came up with afterwards, and that's made known to whoever's um, reviewing your work. Uh, and yeah, so. Um, Pre-registration is like, I think a great tool um, in many ways, like it provides transparency. It also gives um, experimenters, scientists, a chance to um, review their design and get feedback on the design before actually doing the experiment. Um, so I think those are good things and good uses for pre-registration. But I also, I'm of the view that it's not necessarily a one case fits all kind of scenario. Then exploratory research can be rigorous without uh, pre-registration in my opinion so um, yeah so that's but that's being discussed at the moment and being like explored and um, maybe ways to refine pre-registrations for exploratory um, research or ways to show that is or that help exploratory research may be um, may be created in the future what is it like pretty much starting your scientific career during the the this huge paradigm shift yeah so so actually i thought this was how science had always happened like if you go i don't know about your experience but for my experience in high school science we repeated a bunch of experiments a bunch of times um we added the same thing to three different test tubes or three different beakers and tried to observe the same thing in three beakers um so i had assumed replications were a part of science um, one of my earliest experiences was being part of the reproducibility project. So I actually contributed the data collection for one of those projects in that big multi-lab multi project. Um, so I, I had thought, oh yeah, this is like a commonplace thing. Like people like, you know, try other people's experiments, try to replicate and see if it works. Um, and I was shocked that that actually doesn't happen. <laughs> um, so for me, it, 
like it's not quite like an abrupt like paradigm shift it was like the other way like i had thought science was always been like that and i got shocked that science was not more rigorous and did not involve more replications and was not more open and was not more transparent and was not more public to, like accessible to the public um so yeah so um and that's actually so and i think it's a uh, it's good that we caught it <laughs> it's good that we're doing these things and and that's to say actually that um replication crises and um, things like that have occurred in the past people have raised these issues before like hey uh, are we replicating enough um should we be doing more replications those concerns have been raised in the past it just so happens that this iteration of the like wave of the open science wave is like the strongest and here to stay and there's a few reasons for that like the advent of the internet helps um yeah so it's like um and part of me is like yes i like am like losing confidence in science and like i have a crisis at the time but it's also like an exciting time to be part of science uh it's an exciting time to be part of a revolution um and try and like improve things i think that's um a really exciting thing to be a part of and a really impactful thing to be a part part of actually um hence why i'm so passionate about it I'm the last of this generation to be shocked and disappointed by it because you you mentioned before you had that epiphany uh, that that negative epiphany um, you thought this is how it always was. And hopefully by the time you're mentoring your own students, that's how it will be. Well, I would hope so. I hope to pass on, if I'm so lucky enough to have a lab of my own, to, um, to pass on reproducible research practices. Um, and I do think science should be, you know, there's a, for my ideal ways of how science works, um, it should be more collaborative, for example, it should be more open. Um, there should be a more like discussion and feedback between scientists them themselves as well as science communication to the public. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so um, I hope it's like, I do hope in, the, in future generations they don't have to suffer the same perhaps confidence crisis that I, I suffered. Um, but I also hope that, I also don't want them to have the wool like pulled over their eyes and to pretend that there's no crisis going on like that it's definitely a, a thing to have um but perhaps rather than calling it a reproducibility crisis or replication crisis um to borrow a term from samin vizier it's more like a credibility revolution you know yeah. like to give a bit more positive framing like we're just trying to make our our scientific research a bit more credible um and a bit more rigorous uh yeah that's a great place to stop yeah um yeah, thanks for having me. This was a great, great discussion, a great conversation. I uh, hope, yeah, hope, you, hope you got something useful out of it. Um, Definitely. And thank you for your role in this credibility revolution. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Let's, let's get after it. <laughs>